The following episode was recorded before the continuity of Doctor Who was irredeemably screwed up by the 50th anniversary special, The Day of the Doctor. For the purposes of this podcast, references to the ordinal position of the first eight Doctors remains the same. However, all Doctors previously known as and referred to in this podcast by 9 through 12 need to be adjusted up accordingly. It should also be noted that the previously clever and delightful title of the episode, The Eleventh Hour, which once seemed a beautifully fitting name, now hangs dangling from a dead tree, desiccated and lifeless, as it spits on the graves of the hopes and dreams of the now-crushed fans of Doctor Who. single episode of a science fiction TV series and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. This is the Fusion Patrol Podcast. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight it's another one of our special regeneration special episodes in the countdown to the end of the Matt Smith era coming in just December 25th of this year. Um, his regeneration episode is the 11th hour. The Doctor is in trouble. Newly regenerated, he is facing a crisis as the TARDIS is exploding and out of control around him. He crashes into the yard of a small house where he meets Amelia Pond, a young girl who has just been praying to Santa, asking that he send the police about the crack in her wall. As the Doctor goes through the familiarization with his new self, Amelia watched him amusedly which leads the doctor to believe it must be one scary crack in the wall. He determines that the crack is not in the wall, but in the universe itself, and behind it is a prison from which Prisoner Zero has escaped. As the doctor starts to unravel the mystery, the TARDIS cloister bell rings to warn him. The TARDIS is going to explode. The doctor runs to the TARDIS to save it. He must leave, taking the TARDIS five minutes into the future to rephase the engines, but not before promising to take Amelia with him when he returns. Amelia packs her bags and waits. The doctor returns, but it is now daylight. He has worked out what's happening with the crack and Prisoner Zero, and rushes to warn Amelia about the danger she's in, but instead he encounters a policewoman who hits him over the head with a cricket bat and handcuffs him to the radiator. He tries to explain the danger, but it's too late. The policewoman sees Prisoner Zero, and their lives are now in danger. They escape with the arrival of the Atraxes, the jailers searching to recapture Prisoner Zero. The doctor learns that the policewoman is A, not actually a policewoman, and B, Amelia Pond, all grown up. The doctor is 12 years too late. It is clear that Amelia, now known as Amy, has obsessed about the doctor her entire life and was thought psychologically disturbed because of it. The overzealous Atraxi will destroy the planet if Prisoner Zero is not surrendered, and with only 20 minutes remaining, the doctor must convince the disillusioned Amy to trust him and help save the world. The doctor, Amy, and one of her boyfriends, Rory, head to the hospital where Prisoner Zero is using coma patients to hide, and with a bit of brilliance, the doctor brings the Atraxes down on Prisoner Zero. Then the doctor turns on the Atraxi. They were going to destroy a protected level 4 world, the Earth. He convinces them that he protects the Earth, and that they should run, which they do. The TARDIS has repaired itself, and he runs off to test it out, leaving a devastated Amy behind. He returns at night to take her with him, but he learns it has been two more years. He convinces Amy to come with him, but 
promises to return her in the morning. As they leave, we see Amy's wedding dress hanging in her room, amongst all her childhood toys of the Doctor and Amy together. So, here we are, the last uh, Regeneration episode that we have available to us uh, for a while. I'm not actually sure whether this episode's going to make it. I'm going to make sure this episode somehow gets out before the December 25th, 2013 Christmas special. Somehow, we'll get this one out. We're so. certainly recording it before before the... The yeah. departure of Matt Smith. So we're, we're kind of going on the, the body of, of work that we've got already for, from him. And not including the not Day of the Doctor. Complete. Yeah. Indeed, we're recording before the Day of the Doctor. So um, how did this Regeneration episode work for you as a, uh, as a story and, and as a precursor to the Matt Smith time in the TARDIS? It's a, it's a pretty good story. It's actually a better story even than I remember. And I, I think it works pretty well as an introduction on the whole. Looking back, and I mean that we're now in the luxurious position of being able to look back over all of the regeneration stories. I think the last couple have to be my favourite of, of these stories. Hmm. And of the two, I think probably the Christmas Invasion just edges it. And part of the reason for that, I think, is that the 11th hour has a much tougher job to do because it's got so much to introduce um looking back again over all these stories we've had some stories which have been more or less a a, a kind of clean break a, a new era mm -hmm. in, in a way stories like spearhead from space where we've not just had a new doctor but we've had new producers a new a new look to the show we've had new companions and very little in the way of returning actors and and even crew and then we've had stories uh like castrovalva for example where we've had the this the same production team uh many of the same actors uh the same directors the same kind of visual sense and writing a, a, around the show to create a sense of continuity going from one actor to the other and that's that's what the Christmas invasion did so it, its job was much more simple it just had to introduce the new doctor you know we knew Rose already we knew Rose's family we knew Russell T Davis and his style uh, we knew a great deal about the show obviously Stephen Moffat's written uh, what is it four stories before before this one for the show but this is this is the new era of the show coming in so I think it's I think it's got a lot to do in that and it does it it does it pretty successfully because um because to to me this did feel quite different um from from uh, what had come before Matt Smith does give quite a different performance from David Tennant we do get something that is much more fanciful uh, where the visual feel of the show is much more stylized that you you've lost the kind of kitchen sink uh, the, the some of the grittier aspects of the show, and you've gained a more kind of um, colourful, fantastical um, sort of children's. They they described it as a fairy tale, didn't didn't they? Sort mm -hmm. of children's fairy tale version of the show, um, and, and I think it's a pretty good introduction to that, and it and it's something I enjoy. I, I would I would uh, say that with, without doubt, hands down, Eleventh Hour is my favourite regeneration story um the best to last the, the best yeah it it stands it stands alone and i think part of it is 
looking back on the Christmas Invasion, which is not not high on my list as we discussed for the fact that we spend too much time bemoaning Rose's betrayal. And I think this story is stronger because we don't have that, that we can make a clean break from um, whoever his companion was the last week. Oh, he didn't have one the last week. That's right. Um, <laughs> and that he can just pick up and do the basic introduction kind of in the way that, that Rose gave us the opportunity to start from scratch. But where I think this one excels in particular and and i do really you know we as we discussed in the christmas invasion when the doctor comes out of the tardis at the end and he is the doctor he takes it he commands it and he takes the role all the way in this episode the doctor is ambulatory the entire time and i think that's an improvement and he is building the entire time he is getting better and better and better and by the end where he viruses the Atraxi and, and, uh, or viruses the planet and sends the pictures to the Atraxi and, and all that stuff, he has put this together and built to a spectacularly brilliant climax. And I don't know if you noticed, I noticed it on a couple, probably my last viewing, that the I Am the Doctor theme is incomplete earlier in the story. The further back you go towards the beginning, there's kind of the there is the theme to it, but it is not as strong and it is not as um, orchestrated. And as the story goes, it becomes that familiar triumphant I am the Doctor theme by the end. And I don't know if that's intentional or I'm just reading something into it that was was done, but it exactly mirrors the way I feel is going on in this story. The Doctor is improving and sharpening up the whole way. And that's what makes this one stand out for me. By the end of this, you are cheering that victory because he is, yeah, in the same way you do in the Christmas invasion, except that we watch him get there. He doesn't just wake up out of a sleep and then do it. To me, that's more satisfying from a story standpoint. I think you put your finger on the difference there. I'm not sure that I agree that I prefer to see the Doctor build up. I think in the Christmas Invasion, where where we kind of build on that thing that we had in Spearhead from Space, where where the Doctor is in a is in a coma at first and he's not not himself, and you've got that the kind of um, the the absence of the Doctor, um, as it were, to to set against the arrival of well, here here's our new Doctor. In a way, that works better for me because the the trauma stuff can be a bit. It, it can feel a bit forced sometimes. Mm-hmm. And although this one is, I kind of described it as being a clean break, obviously it does follow on quite soon. So we're, we're as an audience, we're seeing this one at Easter, having uh, just seen the end of time at Christmas. So there's the, the, the previous incarnation of the Doctor is still very, very fresh in our minds. But we, we get uh, Matt Smith kind of... Uh, falling over you know early days the, the the steering's off and then we get the the whole um the fish custard scene which i like as a scene but i find the the kind of zaniness in that a bit difficult to watch much in the same way that i think that the peter davison trauma that we saw in uh, castrovalva seemed to be a bit forced and a bit ott and maybe that's partly because going back and watching it now I've got a stronger sense of who Matt Smith's doctor actually is. But maybe it's because in both cases, they're actually having played the part 
in a, a kind of quote normal episode because both this and Castrovalva are not the first that the actor recorded in the role um, perhaps perhaps there's something about that that means what we're what we're seeing isn't quite organic and, and I, I remember having a conversation with you about Castrovalva where you said you didn't like that and I, I said well actually I, I did quite like that because I thought we got a sense of who the doctor was and certainly by the end of this um, for me it's the moment where he steps through the, the holograms of his previous selves and says I am the doctor and that is the moment that he is the doctor he's absolutely right he is done cooking yeah yeah and 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 yeah so maybe you do need some of that but but um i don't know somehow for me seeing seeing that kind of trauma played out i find a little bit harder to watch than having that that sense of um what it's like when the doctor isn't isn't himself represented by the fact that he's actually you know literally absent because he's uh incapacitated i felt that the regenerative trauma in this episode was also played down i mean apart from the the fish custard scene but at least he is not falling all over the place most of the time and that you know, even if the brain is not completely functioning i i, I did i that that also i appreciated so like they they take it too far and too too far is he's incapacitated for three quarters of the story and um, and, you know, really, he was incapacitated. Peter Davison was incapacitated through three quarters of the story. Um, yes, it's a longer story. So they, they managed to fit in both the the kind of eccentricity and the uh, comatose. I, I like him being part. functional, um, but impaired. I mean, there are lots of other problems in this story. And I think that I think that that Matt Smith covers that up by being there and being. Um, working his way through it, whereas if he wasn't in there, if he was unconscious, or or we had he had left the earth and we'd spent some time with Amy with the problems going on in Ledworth or something like that, that would have been more more readily apparent. I think that it's so it's the, it is the strength of his performance in many ways. Yes, yeah, I mean I think the performances in this are terrific, but I think there's something about the structure of it that creates just a little bit of insecurity in the viewer when when you're watching it because it's so so new and so many things are suddenly different and you're trying to get the measure of so many things at once and one of those things again bearing in mind that I think the performances are, are wonderful one of the things that is quite difficult about this is not only have we got a new companion for the doctor so we don't have that that thing where the companion's reaction is what we have to latch on to and, and to give us some sense of security because we're thinking, well, it's not just us who, who's having these feelings. Um, but also we're trying to get to know the new companion. And in this, you have the new companion played by what, unless you really missed all of the pre-publicity, you can't fail to have noticed is a different actress for the first 15 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Um and and so when you're trying to get a sense of who is Amy Pond, that that's also quite difficult. And that and you know that's not a slight on either Captain Blackwood or or the the incomparable Karen Gillan. Um, it's just that's given them a difficult job 
to do as well so and it you know it that in itself isn't a flaw in the episode i just think that that's a structure that's quite challenging do, do you think sense. do you think that uh, we talked about this in rose that in in rose we are following the companion and we are being introduced as we were with barbara and ian we are being introduced to the mystery that is the doctor and so it follows from the standpoint of the companion watching the doctor and learning about the alienist have they flipped that here are they assuming no. that we know the doctor but but with that scene at the well, end where the doctor sees the crack and he kind of basically lies to amy and says you know it's just because i'm lonely and then he looks at the crack and he hides it that that perhaps he is trying to figure out the mystery of amy even at this point so that I, you know I, we're, I think... we're familiar with the doctor and now we've brought in the new companion i think it, i think it's much more complicated than that which is um that it's almost a motto motto for the uh moffat era um Mm. so i I think we've we've we we certainly had the companion was the way in which we experienced the doctor in rose that that was who who we followed and to some extent that was also true i think in spearhead from space and you know they're certainly taking their lead from an unearthly child so none of that's new I think that what we've got in the 11th hour is very much the story of the girl who waited. This is this is Amy's story and in a way, I mean what what we what we're at the start of here what we can certainly say with with hindsight even with a couple more Matt Smith episodes to go is that the the Amy Pond story which lasted for two and a half seasons quite a, a kind of long and important story in the show because that that pairing of the same the same actor in the role of the doctor and the, the the same actor in the role of the companion is the longest we've had since the show came back um so so it's in, it's obviously introducing a character who is going to be we you know we will find out is as important in the show as the doctor but i think it is doing it from the doctor's perspective so we, we start the episode following the doctor you know post regeneration with him hanging from the TARDIS and flying over London. And every time there is a jump through time, we see it from the Doctor's perspective. Mm-hmm. So when he gets in his TARDIS and disappears, we see the TARDIS reappear and we discover with the Doctor that the passage of time has been far greater than he realised and that this this person, and we probably realised it before him, but that, that uh, this person is actually the same Amelia Pond that he he left just several years later so i i i think i think it's doing it's just, it is just, it's just doing a lot because we i think we're we're learning about the doctor but we are also getting amy's story and i think that's a tension that runs through it and i think that's maybe one of the reasons that it isn't quite as successful hmm. it's it's more complicated than it should be and and part of the way the story is told is more complicated than it should be you, you you would think though that poor amy would have by this point learned that when the doctor says sure i can return you tomorrow morning for although he doesn't know it for your wedding um come on <laughs> that'd be he's three misses in a row right <laughs> yeah well i don't, i mean i i doubt that she believes him i i think she probably but he does actually well maybe but 
what she really wants to do is go with him anyway and, and as we will learn she has some some doubts about the next morning anyway so the longer she takes to get there maybe the better um, <laughs> but, but you, you know i th- i think this this complexity is qu- it, that's quite different from what we saw in rose because with rose where rose was the character through whom we discovered the doctor we learn pretty much all we need to know about rose through that original montage getting to know what kind of character she is what you know mm-hmm. you, you you see a, t- a, a typical day in her life with her um, pratt boyfriend where, <laughs> yeah where she works what she what she does in her spare time you kind of have a sense of of who she is um with amy we get to see who she was as a as a child barely just about yeah well a little bit we, we learn um, she lives with her aunt we learn she lives with her aunt which is which is again is i mean that's that's an interesting difference from the russell t davis era where you consider the importance of family in the the story and the fact that we keep coming back to the powell estate and we we've for each of the the companions we kind of get a little um a, a little kind of group of satellites around them of relatives who are a kind of base to come back to and this is a break with that in the sense that we've got something where i mean there is actually a a, a plot reason revealed later for it but we've got something that's much more in that tradition of children's stories where the main thing is you know you get the adults out of the way or if you have adults you make sure that they just let the kids do their own thing you know very much like the the sort of arthur ransom stories or um or the or the kind of narnia stories where the kids go off on their own and the adults just don't play a role. Okay. And that's what we've got here. We've got a kid who, you know, she's allowed to use the cooker on her own, which I'm thinking when I was her age, I don't remember being allowed to do that unsupervised. Um, so so I was going to save this for later, but since we're on the subject of it, let's just, you know, we've got the entire history of Doctor Who behind us. We know what kind of uh, companions he's had in the past and of course in this one he comes along and takes um amy at 20 22 years of age as a companion but it appears for all the world that the 11th doctor is going to take a what is she supposed to be eight years old Mm -hmm. an eight-year-old girl as his companion how would that have flown with audiences if he actually had i I mean I i don't think anyone really thinks about that from I imagine if I was eight years old, I would be thinking that would be so cool. I could go with a doctor uh, because that's, you know, that's for the kids. Yeah. But if as an adult looking at that going, ooh, actually, mm, <clears throat> that that that's probably not a good idea. Uh, not from the standpoint, you know, she could be a complete orphan and not have anywhere to go. And I suppose you could say he's taking an award or something like that. But I mean, it is kind of actually... <sighs> Should we read anything into that in the doctor or should we just, you know, say that was Moffat going, I'm going to throw one in for the kids so that they would think there's a possibility that they could go off with the doctor and not have to be an attractive 20 year old girl before they're going to go. But I didn't really really notice it. I don't quite know what you're suggesting about the doctor. I don't like to think if it's no, I shall just I shall just assume I'm not suggesting that there is that the doctor have anything untoward in mind in any way shape or form in exactly the same way that i am not suggesting that batman had anything untoward in mind all those years with having 
you know, being a single bachelor and having a teenage ward that he took in. Other than it's exactly what was written. It was meant to be a paternal figure taking care of a younger person. And in 1950, you could write a story where somebody did that without somebody, you know, screaming the P word. And I, th I, th I, th I think you can do that. And I don't think I... it would necessarily be a problem, except that I think it would change the direction of the show more to it that the the format is a kid's show be a lot longer format. before she get pregnant with river <laughs> <laughs> yeah <clears throat> one would hope so um the the there's not there's nothing i mean the the difficulties obviously you know child actors and all this kind of thing but also there's the question of whether adults would necessarily find enough to identify with in in an eight-year-old um certainly far less easily than perhaps eight-year-olds would find things to identify with in 22-year-old amy but after all this is essentially the format of the sarah jane adventures you know you have a woman in her 60s a woman on her lives on her own is quite a recluse and these kids go and spend all their time in her attic and in that in that case obviously you can just about justify it in the sense that their parents are her neighbours and so they they are not far away and they are nominally keeping an eye on them. That, that wouldn't work if Sarah Jane was a man. If that was Turlo grown up, <laughs> they, would, they would not there's, fly. There's men and then there's Turlo. All right, Adric. Uh, it's, I'm having a hard... Uh, Ian Chesterson even. You would... I don't know. I think, I, think it, I, I think it could work with Ian Chesterton. I don't know. I I think it could work. I think it's how you do it that's the crucial thing because you can't just have the doctor turn up in his flying machine and take an eight-year-old. It's it's bad enough that he he is he is so irresponsible about time that 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 two years at the end of this episode I find really hard to forgive. He gets into the TARDIS because he can't control himself and he has to go for a joyride. He's, he leaves her waiting for two years again. Now, if he was that casual about his responsibilities to, towards an eight-year-old for whom, you know, parents or, or whoever, whatever authorities might, you know, spend that time looking for her and, and grieving over her disappearance. That like they did with Rose. tragedy. Well, uh, yes, I mean, in a sense, it's okay because Rose that old, but but the 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 real power in this story is is that thing. I think um, it, in in some ways this reminds me a bit of Aliens of London and, and World War Three because although I found that to be one of the weakest Russell T Davies stories, one of the things that really excited me about what he had done with the show, what he was doing with the show, was when the Doctor lands to take Rose back home doesn't realise until she's left the TARDIS and run back to Jackie that he's got it 12 months wrong and that by letting her loose at that time he's made it impossible to go back and he's therefore basically condemned her mother to, to 12 months of, of waiting and grieving over a loss. And in a sense that's what the Doctor does to Amy here the first time he disappears and says he'll be five minutes and it's you know, twelve minutes and four psychiatrists, or whatever she says. Yeah, and 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 because Karen Gillan is so good, you kind of you, you see that in her performance, and you see the the kind of effect it has had on her as a character. And I find that 
the most powerful aspect of this story and one of the things that in a way does kind of nod back to the the russell t davis era when many other things are a clean break but i i do think and it, and it comes back to this this question of complexity again the fact that moffat can't resist adding into that well let's you know let let's do a let's do a twist here so we we don't actually reveal that this is the same Amelia Pond straight away. We we kind of let let that realization uh, fall into place later. So we play a trick trick on the audience. We play a trick on the Doctor, and then and similarly, and let's play a trick to pretend that she is a policewoman when she's not actually a policewoman or whatever. So you're you're kind of flipping back and forth, guessing about the unimportant things and. That's absolutely not, I think, the way that Russell T. Davies would have written it, because he would have focused on the emotional core of it, which is that that loss and, you know, the, the 12 years of waiting and the effect that that has had on, on this woman's childhood. See, now, this is, this is probably, in my opinion, the fundamental difference between Russell T. Davies and Stephen Moffat, and, and this is a perfect example of it, possibly the best example I can think of. In this episode, just as the doctor is building, so too is the solution. We are we are given the pieces. We're given Rory and who we haven't talked about yet, but we're given Rory <laughs> and his and his phone and his obsession with the coma patients. And we're given uh you know, we all of that follows through to the doctor using those pieces and what he has at hand to solve this crisis brilliantly. Whereas Russell T. Davies famously, uh, when presented with some idea of a problem in a story, said something like, I could fix that in two sentences. And he could because he couldn't plot uh, a solution. He never did. He spent all his time dealing with the emotions, dealing with the people, dealing with the dramatic elements. And so he has been accused, and I think rightly, of solving his stories much too easily um, in the last couple of minutes. Um, oh, I'll just grab a bucket of stuff and slide down the elevator and spray things and oh, we're solved. Uh, you know, no foreshadowing, no, <laughs> no build up, no nothing. Um, and that puts a different, to me, that puts a different type of brilliance on the doctor. There's spontaneous brilliance and then there's planning ahead and laying the foundation brilliance and, and Matt Smith and, and Moffat's term or at least Moffat's writing in, in cases like this. Again, it's it's a style I prefer. I would rather them perhaps sacrifice some of the drama for some of the melodrama, I guess, would be the, the way I'd put it. Anyway. But, uh, well, yes and no. I mean, I think I, I would agree with you that, generally speaking, Moffat is better at those things, but I don't think... And uh, yeah, this this story does build up, but it's not it's not immune from some of those things. Oh, I mean, no. you know, grabbing a laptop and patching into a video conference between, you know, the the world's uh, great it, leaders is and there Patrick a, Moore. Is there a difference? Well, I mean, we, we've had this with the sonic screwdriver over the years too, and still have this with the sonic screwdriver. There is the school of thought that says, you know, the sonic screwdriver is a magic device that gets the doctor out of any situation that he needs. And on the other hand, you know, a writer who says a locked door should not be the thing that stops the doctor from solving the problem. You know, if that is the solution is to get through a door, then this is not a problem worthy of worthy of the doctor and and the sonic screwdriver and the laptop are things that should be should get the doctor past these little simple things but 
I agree, it's a spectrum, because obviously nowadays that um, the sonic screwdriver is used way too much for as a magic wand. Yeah. But, but it is oh, a this is a balance. This is a balance got to be somewhere. It, it is a balance. You're quite right. And in a way, the problem with this is he doesn't use the sonic screwdriver on the laptop. That would almost have been enough to, to satisfy me in that <laughs> sense, because, you know, that is just like a locked door, if you like. And it, and you... But he is demonstrating his hacking skills here, which are then in evidence when he writes that virus. Yeah, on a phone. Yeah. Um, yes, I, I, I mean, maybe. I, I mean, my interpretation of this is that th- th- those aspects of this story are not, not Moffat at his best. Um, but then, you know, you, p- you picked on a story, but then I would say New Earth isn't midnight. Russell T. Davis had his off days too, so... I, I I think I think if anything, the weak aspects of this story are the the kind of nods back because I've said this is a clean break and it brings in all of these new people and you know apart from Murray Gold, it is pretty much all new people. Mm. I think. And Phil Collins is still in there for the first year. Okay, okay, yeah, I think maybe. But but you know what we see on what we see on screen. And even some of what we hear, because the the style of music is is, is different, um, it, you know, it's very very different. So there's no doubt that what we're seeing here is a big break. Yet I think there's a conscious effort, and again, this is true of the kind of early Moffat, early Matt Smith stuff, to hang on a bit to the Russell T Davis template. And I can see why that is. I can see you don't want to move too far and too fast because you want people to. You want to bring people with you and keep people comfortable that it is still the show that they know and love. But what you know, what we get in this story is that the premise around which everything is based is, you know, it's the, it's another kind of um, massive invasion of Earth. You know, the aliens broadcasting on all channels. There's there's this kind of motif through the Russell T Davis thing of of seeing the newscasts and seeing what's going on on all the channels. You get that in this. You see the kind of big spaceships, just like in Aliens of London and in uh, well, the Runaway Bride. Of, yeah, there we go. Um, yeah, I was thinking of the Runaway Bride because you know <laughs> the spaceships are almost identical. Um, you know, I I I think the part of the problem here is that. Moffat is trying to write in a style that isn't quite the Moffat style, if that makes sense. So it isn't it isn't playing to his strengths. Um, but at, but actually, if he were adopting something from the Russell T Davis era, era, I would much rather that he he kind of left the the lame twenty um, first centuries where it all begins, aliens always invading kind of nonsense, and picked up on that emotional focus because the story here about the girl who waited is a terrific story yeah the idea behind it is uh, i mean it, it is heck it's it's stephen moffat he is the child who waited for doctor who yeah and got yeah. it <laughs> yeah i mean you could look at that story this this is this is childhood fan fulfillment growing up through through the idea that that your dream realized uh of traveling with a doctor um, so if, 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 if it's said to be right, what, you know, in this case, I think he's writing what he knows. Um, <laughs> do you think shifting gears slightly, do you think that Matt Smith's portrayal, even though he's a bit subdued here, 
through towards to the end, as we've already discussed. Is it a good indicator? I mean, he's already recorded some later episodes and is now doing this after he's done his done his practice runs in some later episodes. Is it a good indicator of what the Matt Smith era and the Matt Smith Doctor turns out to be? By the end of it, yeah, I think it is. And even early on, I mean, I think there are some, there are some good indications. When I, so I I kind of um, picked at the fish custard scene a bit, which I do like as a as a scene. Beans are I, evil. I, I, I yeah, I I I found the kind of um, the zaniness perhaps a little forced. When that passes, when he actually sits down with his fish fingers, dips them in the custard, and starts having a serious chat with Amelia, you do get a, a, a performance from him that I think is just great. And similarly, that that moment, like I said, when he, when he steps through through the hologram and he is the Doctor, when his whole posture, the way he addresses the alien, the way he stands, all of that at that point, you're getting this kind of uh, very the 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 kind of otherworldly, but also the kind of um, confident and energetic doctor that that you know we know matt smith to be now that we've we've had his era so so yeah i think on the whole this is this is a pretty good indicator i think we don't get it all at this point in quite the way that uh, perhaps we did with with tenant i think we get layers of something else with matt smith and in particular the kind of darker aspects of his character don't don't appear to be in evidence at this point and only kind of reveal themselves at, at moments of uh, great difficulty or, or desperation I suppose but at that in a way that's how it should be I think we're we're, we're seeing the direction of the 11th doctor here but we're not getting it all at once no, it's funny you, you should you should mention the fish custard scene because I enjoy the fish custard scene um all of it i enjoy that scene and i can't tell you why because i don't particularly like slapstick but for some reason it works whether it's because he's sitting at the table with a kid or because we expect a little bit of post-regenerative you know this is the one time where i'm willing to accept it i really don't know what it is but matt smith has goes on to be zanier and zanier and zanier and to me, that has been not a good thing at all in any way, shape, or form. I have liked Matt Smith less and less from this episode on. I don't dislike him, but he never topped it than this episode when he Ooh. steps through the thing and says, I am the Doctor. And he has not topped it since. And, it's, and it is because no matter what he's doing, he will bust into one of those just irritating, zany things. And I'm See, like, wow, it, it busts it for me every time. I, oddly, because I kind of picked on the zaniness of this, I really don't have a problem with it in later episodes. But also, I'm I'm quite surprised at, at you kind of saying this is this is the best Matt Smith performance because I think even what well, well, I suppose oddly enough, actually in in the first episodes that were recorded, the uh, time he's, of the he's Angels, actually pretty good there too. Because they're it's, pretty subdued. That's, he's terrific in that. Uh, I mean, be better than this, I think, for sure. Um, not that he's bad in this, but just that he really knocked it out of the park there. And, uh, you know, by the time we get on to, to the following season, which 
for my money, is probably the best season of Doctor Who ever, certainly of the 21st century Who. Um, it, the the performance, he, he just nailed it at that point. So I, um, I feel, and, and from interviews you hear with Moffat, you know, he's they have hired Matt, they have brought him in, he's doing the job, they've been working on it, and it feels to me like he has, quote-unquote, discovered that Matt is a comedic genius. And he said that. And he's got such great comedic timing. And I think they've they proceeded to then write that up, thinking they were writing to his strength. And I don't think that is his strength. I think that when he is a serious doctor, when he is being the clever doctor, when he's being the annoyed doctor, in any capacity he is better than when he is being the zany doctor. I, I, but it do doesn't... You, I mean... You agreed with me, I think, that Christopher Eccleston didn't... He couldn't do zany, that's couldn't, true. ...couldn't do comedy. For me, Matt Smith absolutely can do comedy, um, both in this and other things I've seen him in. He is he he has a, a very kind of, um, how should we say, individual, quirky uh, comic timing, but it is, or at least can be, funny. Okay, so Christopher Eccleston couldn't do comedy. And so that always fell flat, or at least in the context of Doctor Who, Christopher Eccleston couldn't do it. I'm not picking on Christopher Eccleston, but here I feel like the Doctor can't do comedy. It's not that Matt Smith isn't doing it right. It's that it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me in the way that Tom Baker could do zany. And I can't tell you why, but Tom Baker could do the zany and 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 do it, and his Doctor could do it. But Matt Smith's perhaps because he's looks like he's 12 um can't i don't know it it may be just the just the the gravitas of the of the the general persona i just don't know but i felt that they continued to write up the comedy and that that was to the detriment of the character um not that that not that matt smith couldn't wobble his legs and flop around like a rubber band and 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 say strange things it just that it didn't it didn't work for me for the character the way that they were driving him. Sort of the old man in the young man's body. It doesn't... It, didn't, it just didn't... The balance just was never right. They could have They could have tipped it. Like I said, they had it about right in this episode to me, for some reason. But, And I think in, in, in um, Flesh and Flesh and Stone and Time of Angels, it was... I remember a little bit of zany in the... Um, uh, in the museum at the beginning, but it wasn't bad. Yep. And then, but for the most of the rest of the episode, it wasn't like that. And if we could say that was up to them trying to figure out what he was up to. Therefore, I think we're seeing the undistilled original intention for what that doctor would be like. And then as we got to the second season and on, we saw the revised, hey, Matt does comedy version of the doctor. And I, I didn't, didn't, didn't like that. I, I, I can't, I'm trying to put my finger on why I why I think it works, and uh, because even as you kind of mentioned Tom Baker, I can think of instances where Tom Baker did go over and uh -huh. did great a bit. And there's something about the way City of Death. <laughs> anyway, uh, but yeah, possibly, possibly. Um, it's it. I think it's because he can turn it on a dime and go instantly from comic to dark, and vice versa or perhaps less vice versa but certainly to turn things around far more effectively than i think uh think tenant could although he was very kind of agile at that 
kind of thing. But I, I often I, found his his kind of angry I, doctor a bit forced. I think Whereas I can, with Matt Smith, I buy it totally. I think I can I can see what it is in Tom Baker, and I'll, I have to think about it a little bit just to make sure I'm not selectively choosing. Tom Baker's zaniness always had an edge of seriousness behind it. Whatever he was joking about was kind of germane to what yes. was happening. Matt Smith is not like that. And and I think about um, the almost people. I can't even remember what the line is, but he comes down and there's the weather vane and he makes some comment. Oh, I haven't seen a weather vane like that. No, 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 something like that. He's making some, some wacky comment about some goofy thing that happened to him once in the past. And it doesn't, it doesn't have the edge to it that Tom Baker's did. Um, you know, even when he was, Tom Baker was at his worst during the, the first Romana one season, um, where, where he had, you know, was out of control. And, um, there was usually when he was joking at somebody or with someone, there was, there was a reason behind it. It was not just completely non sequitur even when his non sequiturs were meant to throw people off and i i don't get that with matt matt's just kind of rambling his comedy is kind of oh yeah i remember this funny time i had thing or whatever and it just it 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 isn't integrated into the story in any way it isn't integrated into the character that he possesses he is not he is not fooling people into thinking he is um a, a fool which i think tom baker did a lot of the time yeah. To, to underestimate him. Even Sylvester McCoy was better at that for convincing people that he was a fool so that they would be disarmed. Matt's not doing that. I don't get that. And that's where I don't... It, it, it seems superfluous to the story, to the plot, to the character, to everything. Oh, well. <laughs> well, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I agree with it, but it's, an, it's interesting that we have such different perspectives on it. Well, let's talk about a few of the little things here. In the episode, we get to see Rory's uh, one of her boyfriends uh, is is certainly implied uh, that it's only one of her boyfriends. Um, and as a kissogram, I suspect she gets uh, that is. Um, <laughs> I don't even understand why Moffat chose. I mean, yeah, OK, it gives him an opportunity to put her in the police uniform. But I mean, is is it. Is it me or is it just Kissagram meant to be a G-rated version of Stripper, right? Yeah. Okay. That's a pretty adult concept for um, <laughs> Doctor Who. It's like, does it really add, it doesn't really add anything to the character of Amy after this first episode, apart from the fact that she wore a police uniform. Or are we supposed to get that she is damaged goods because of the doctor? I, I don't know. But it's it's forgotten immediately. And the only thing it does is it, it you know, the dads go, ooh, okay. <laughs> I, think, I think there's an element of uh, damaged goods stuff. But, uh, I mean, coming, coming back to, to the idea that, it's, that it overcomplicates thing, things, I did kind of think what would be wrong with her being a... A policewoman, and I suppose in a sense, if she actually were a policewoman, then in some sense she would have found a vocation and found a way of, of kind of channeling her anger or whatever it is into something useful. And that that would serve the story less. But 
my I I kind of think it's part of it is also let's let's do that so we can put her in a costume so we can fool the audience fool the doctor once again add an extra twist and an extra bit of complexity and it's it it just needed pairing back it would if you you wonder sometimes when when you've got the the lead writer the the kind of ultimate authority in terms of editing these scripts when they do their own stories do is what they need for someone else to kind of take over the role of saying well look that's not going to work because that's what they do with the other scripts that they get and sometimes I've felt with both Russell T Davis and Stephen Moffat that they maybe have allowed what you might call an indulgence too many in in their script and it just needed a firm hand to kind of say no cut that is that a flaw from the modern era where we have this amazing title of showrunner which we did not have when doctor who was a classic series and well, we always we... had a producer and a script editor and writers well i think we did have a showrunner in the sense because i think the script editor did so much in terms of of shaping the stories and we still have someone in the producer producer role in in this era so but rarely did the script editor write you know all the well, pivotal episodes the, yeah uh, well first of all there weren't the pivotal episodes because you didn't get the, the the same kind of story arcs but also you did get um them writing but you had rules that they weren't supposed to right which is why it, you it, got all those pseudonyms when they when they kind of broke those rules and and that tended to be out of necessity because they right uh, they'd been let down uh, you know that they needed to deliver something and the only way to do it was was to write it themselves i could see and that i think we what's missing is there was a reason for those rules and it was a good reason yeah, I, I think if we went back, we would only find that the script editor had to contribute a script probably every other year. Oh, it was certainly the exception rather than the rule. Right. Yeah. And, and I th and I think it, I mean apart from the fact that, that I think it it is important to have someone at a distance from the scripts, kind of shaping them up and and knocking them about a bit to make yes. sure that they're fit for purpose. It's an awful strain to put on one writer to turn out that much. Um, you know year in year out and i think that's certainly the reason for for the kind of the specials under russell t davis's reign and quite possibly part of the reason why we saw split seasons with the moffat era so that as with russell t davis in the space of four years we've only had three proper series uh, let me let me just throw out a couple names here uh to exemplify exactly that um uh jk rowling and Stephen King, both of whom have enjoyed enormous success as authors, and both of whom, if you look at their old books and you look at their new books, you will see a two and three and fourfold increase in the size of those books, <laughs> and not the quality, yeah. and definitely not the quality of those books. And I right. genuinely believe that when an unknown writer who has talent gets put through the process where an editor looks at that book and says, here's some suggestions and I think you can do this and maybe we don't need that and the other thing, that that we get a superior product to when they have made bazillions of dollars or pounds or whatever that they are collecting in their, in their safe at home um, where they can basically write something and no editor has the, the temerity to say, you know, JK, I'm thinking we don't need the first third of this book because it doesn't advance the plot one jot. Nobody will say that. So, you know, we know we're going to sell it 
we know it's gonna go we <laughs> and i think their work suffers for it for not having that hand so i mean i think it's i think you're i think you're dead on i think they need I, a, I don't a script editor with, doesn't don't you know if i agree with your example of jk rowling um the quality you, not improving but i i think that the point is 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 the same yes absolutely you don't think those last books are are so full of padding that it's not? I think the quality improved. I'm not saying that they couldn't have done with a bit of a trim. Thirty three percent trim. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I can I, mean, I, I don't remember which one it was, but I remember reading one of them where I I thought we were in the story and it was a camping trip that lasted what. I don't know. It must have been 40 trips to the restroom for me to read that thing, you know, a couple pages at a time. So that was a long, long bit the, of book. The Deathly Hallows. <laughs> like, so and it went, gone. <laughs> without wanting to stray too far off the topic, <laughs> I think I think there's truth in the fact that um, you can find without constraints that the actual quality of the output can be can be lower. And simply the, the fact that you've got some some kind of constraints there or the fact that you've got someone who will look at your work and be critical and take out the bits that that don't work will mean that what you what you produce what you turn in is actually of a higher quality okay uh switch switch gears a little bit let, let me i've got a little list here and i want to i'm just going to throw them out um the myth computer the duck pond with no ducks uh, prisoner zero um the um silence will fall um all of these things to me feel like and perhaps this is from my anticipation and my my belief that moffat is a complicated and long-term writer all of these things feel like they have some meaning i mean the miss computer with the greek letter psi as the you know there was lots of speculation that that meant something but did it? I don't know. I, are, are we going to see this in the last two episodes? Because I don't think, apart from the silence will fall, which turned out to be basically nothing at all to do with this. Um, the others have been shot, and I think there's probably a few others throughout the course of it have been ignored completely beyond this episode. Red herrings? Just... I'm not sure even that because I think I think it's possible for fans to turn something that is almost incidental into something that's deeply mysterious. The name the silence the silence will fall is the exception because of the kind of portentous way in which Prisoner Zero announces it. Oh, and the name um, Prisoner Zero, that 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 I mean that is, I, I that that doesn't seem at all right. I mean, if you had a you had a prison and a single prisoner got out of it. What are the odds are that it is the prisoner with the first number in the book? You know what I mean? Like prisoner two five three one nine eight. I don't know. I don't know. Would num how would you number prisoners? Because I wouldn't start from zero. I wouldn't. Well, I, I was a computer guy, but it might. <laughs> it, but but, but yeah, zero is such a zero is such a unique number. I mean, in in the scheme of number systems, zero is an odd. It's kind of the odd one out. It's a concept that doesn't necessarily immediately uh, appear in numeric systems. It's a it's it's a relatively late concept. Compare, I mean, not that we didn't know there was nothing, but in terms of numerizing things, um, yes, it's it a just, later invention than 
say the other positive integers. It's very much well, like the, in the prisoner the you have integers. number six, which doesn't mean anything, and number one, which we take to mean the boss. Yes. And, and, here and we that's have why I don't zero. think prisoner zero is the first numbered, because I think you're you're atypical, if you'll excuse me saying so, and I think that this owes more to the nomenclature for things like uh, ground zero or patient zero. Yeah, and and so I think they're. But those are usually it. important. Yes, really but important. It, but but what, but what you're what you're. I mean, if you take patient zero, what you're talking about is the the source of something. So, prisoner zero, I can't, I can't quite get my head around what that means, but its its significance is something to do with the fact that this is a someone who is a source of lawlessness or of um, something for which they need to be incarcerated. And then we never, they never carry on in any way, shape, or form with that. It just, no. it seems like an odd thing that they could have just called it prisoner Milton a name or you know whatever like like a like a person would have a name a prisoner an alien would have had a name but we don't call except under roll call situations in prisons they actually kind of have these people have names they also have numbers but it it just it feels like prisoner zero should be more important than prisoner zero was as far as we can tell unless prisoner zero shows up again which would be <laughs> If Prisoner Zero shows up in the Christmas special before he regenerates, I will be <laughs> I don't know if I'll be impressed. It'll be tend on the story, but but I will I will I will eat a Satsuma or something. Or Clementine. I, yes. <laughs> Me too. In fact, I might eat, eat a Satsuma even if Prisoner Zero doesn't turn up in the Christmas special because, you know, it'll be Christmas. Uh that's right. You guys do fruit for Christmas, don't you? Maybe it is Christmas by the time people are listening to this. It should be. Merry um, Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas, listeners. We'll we'll get this out around around Regeneration Day. So when you're we're going, so. Um, the, normally in a computer on a TV show, they just cover up the name. They don't put a fake one over it. Nor do they put a fake one over that's really obvious, and or and even invent a logo for the computer to put on the back that's a Greek letter. Um, I, I, yes, I don't think that I don't think that's a, that uncommon on BBC shows um, because because of the the charter of the BBC prohibiting any form of advertising or commercial product placement. But I, but I plenty of times see an Apple computer on the BBC and they've just silvered over the Apple logo so that you can't see it. They yes. don't turn around and, and make a Satsuma and put it on the back. <laughs> And, sure, and you, make you up a have, logo, you, but no, no, you have you have to you have to take it out, and so it would have been equally possible just to have just a blanket, but maybe it didn't look right. I don't know. I mean, that that could have been a purely design choice at you know the time of at, at, at production. Nothing in the script about this. Um, the uh, the Atraxi in this episode, I think, are particularly stupid. Is that that does that come off with you? And the doctor is working his sonic screwdriver, and they're like, ooh, 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 there's something in the area. Ooh, ooh. And then the sonic screwdriver blows up, and they go, oh, it's gone. I'll just leave. Yeah. Wouldn't you keep rather, looking? Rather than saying, let, yeah, let's actually track down the source of whatever that was um, so that we can either eliminate it as being not patient zero, or maybe it was patient zero. So, yeah, I 
th- that's one of the many problems with this story. I, I, I don't feel that the Atraxi really, apart from I'm going to blow up the planet, are doing a very good job of searching for Prisoner Zero. Yeah, I mean, that's part of what I put down as, as being the kind of inherited problem with, with the kind of invasion of Earth type stories where the aliens and that, that aspect of the plot were were fairly incidental. But incidental's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But there's no need to do something that is so spectacular and indeed spectacularly stupid. You can do something smaller scale and certainly in the past that has been the strength of Moffat's stories. He's made his monsters quite small scale and consequently more believable. This is the uh, is this the second montage we've seen of all doctors after the next doctor. Yes. I believe so. So we're reaffirming well, assuming you assuming you don't count Earthshock. No, I, yeah, I'm talking in, in since the return. Since since the since the days when we weren't entirely sure that he was the other doctors. Yes, no John Hurt in there I noticed. Yeah, funny that. Just checking. Yeah, funny that. Although that maybe on the revised issues of Blu-rays um he'll be I will be so impressed if after when you've all heard this if Peter Capaldi actually is in Day of the Doctor and they just haven't released him in any of the trailers, I will be so impressed with that. I will be quite surprised. Well, it'll be, you know, making an episode before you get around to doing your regeneration episode. It makes perfect sense. I, I, it would be good. I certainly, you know, was hoping that would be the case. But looking at the fact that, of looking at the timing of when it was filmed and when he was announced and the fact that it was all done in 3D, making kind of mounting even the production of a short scene quite a, a palaver yeah i think it's pretty unlikely yeah well by now that's done and dusted so yeah we'll we'll see we will know yes uh you see the pertree jacket in the uh clothes scene rory no is, i didn't but rory is holding a, a red uh, velvet pertree style jacket as one of the options that uh, matt smith had to pick from Okay, well, I mean, it, it certainly is the third story now, isn't it? Where it's been, let's get our clothes for a new costume from nicking it from a hospital. Yeah, and I appreciate the fact that this is, he's doing it, that's hearkening back to probably more Spearhead from Space than it is um, um, yes, the, the movie. I so. so I think the Pertree Jacket's appropriate uh, that he would find one of those. Uh, as he has once before <laughs> in a hospital. <laughs> which it was at the time, I think, you, you commented on being rather unlikely. But uh, So what did you think of the costume itself then? The one that he chose? I liked the costume that he chose. Um, I, I, think it's, I think it's better than uh, either Tenet's or uh, Eccleston's because neither Tenet's or Eccleston's look out of place. And you can go too far, Colin Baker, or <laughs> or you can, you know, be more in the William Hartnell, um, even Tom Baker, with the exception of the scarf. If you took his scarf off, he would be wearing a slightly eccentric outfit, but not not something that, again, if you saw somebody wearing it, you just think well, that's a questionable choice of that's a questionable choice of clothes you've put on there, sir. I think you've dressed uh, out of your dad's closet kind of thing. <laughs> and but whereas Colin Baker, Peter Davison, uh even even John Pertwee, um you look like you're wearing a costume. Particularly later John Pertwee, but it it just is like 
yeah, that 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 just was never anybody's and so. But but Matt Smith's, uh, yeah, sure, uh, a university professor in 1960s. I can totally see somebody wearing that outfit. So well, yes. in that respect, I I kind of think you're looking at him saying, "Excuse me, sir, I think you dressed out of your granddad's wardrobe." Um, okay, granddad's dance. Depends. It depends. Some people have kids later than others. Um, I I I thought it was pretty awful i have to say and part of the reason for that i mean i i take your point about certainly davison baker looking like a, a costume maybe not as much pertwee actually sylvester mccoy's except for the question marks is not too wacky either no it's not a great it's not a great outfit you don't if you if you put someone else in that outfit wouldn't immediately strike you it was the doctor whereas if you put someone in say david tennant's outfit i would immediately think they're dressed as the doctor now yes that's the that's the thing i i I really liked tennant's outfit because it was i did think it you know it could it could pass it didn't just look like a, a costume but it was so recognizable and it, it it kind of it, it it gave a sense of being slightly different because it was dressy i suppose and i i the problem i have with with matt smith is not that it looks like a costume but that the only reason that it stands out is because it looks like he's wearing the clothes of someone two generations older than him and i can see that the intention behind it is to try and reflect this idea of he is this this very old although although he's a young actor he's playing this very old character but i i don't think he needs it i i just think he's so good at that and he he manages this old man thing so well that the, the, the costume the costume is almost a drag on that in a sense it, it it kind of makes that appear to be more of an affectation than a reality what about his latter um, costume then with clara well, I think the later costume is much better, and I think it's interesting that more than any previous Doctor, he's he's completely chucked out the original costume and gone for something totally different. And and yeah, it's a huge improvement in in my book. When they took the the initial publicity photos, I mean, I think the Christopher Eccleston costume was an interesting statement in its in the fact that it was so simple it was reasonably recognizable but it was completely passable and and the publicity photos with matt smith just had him wearing a blazer over a t-shirt and it was again a very simple costume but it suited him and it it didn't look old and fogey-ish but because he could do that and he could carry it off himself i kind of wish that they'd stuck with something just like that something that was really really simple it seems to me like he was wearing an outfit that somebody on miami vice would have been wearing as i recall uh from those publicity photos yeah but it it it, it was stylish so 1980s drug runner <laughs> yeah. yeah okay you know what you want is something that is slightly out of time something that isn't isn't of the now isn't of 2010 um because that that obviously would would just blend in and would look like everything else, but you don't want it to be completely alien in a Colin Baker way. So oh, yeah. yeah, that would have done it for me, I think. Hmm. Well, let's see. Have we got anything else um, on this episode? I don't think I do. 
The only other thing, I suppose, is the fact that, as well as new everything else, we get new TARDIS interior with uh, the new Doctor. And that that's certainly, um, well... A huge improvement over the... Yeah, I mean, again, that, again that changes during during uh, Smith's era. But um, but yeah. but that that again that's that seems to be a slight slightly unusual thing because that's happened. Obviously, the TARDIS has changed; its interior has changed in minor ways. It changed once in a slightly more major way during the Baker, the Tom mm-hmm. Baker One era. But, um, mm. but 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 when we've had the other big changes, the 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 Eighth Doctor's TARDIS and the Ninth Doctor's TARDIS, that's coincided with big breaks in the production. Whereas here we've got the production. There's, there's continuity in it, in the sense the production office has stayed open throughout. I, I but don't... this is a, an on-screen acknowledgement of the all-new production team. I don't like changing the TARDIS throughout the throughout the history of Doctor Who. Um, I, to me, throughout the classic series, up to that change you talked about in Tom Baker, it felt to me like a, a continuity problem. It's like, well, we just made a new console. Uh, and so... In a way, I can kind of forgive those changes. So we had fire burned it down. We had to make a new one or, or whatever it happened to be. Uh, I got the feeling that it was supposed to be the same room. When Tom Baker went to his ulterior alternate console, he went to a different room in the TARDIS altogether. And yes. that, that was far more, oh, it's the backup console room. I totally bought that. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And the fact that the TARDIS is so amazing, the front door can be in more than one place. Yes. And apparently remember when you come back in that you want to go back to the room that you came up. But all of that is absolutely well, presumably cool. You just re- replumb the TARDIS so the front door is now attached to the yeah. secondary room. So that, yeah. So that, that, that to me, that was, that was great. I love that. And I, I was fine with it. When... Peter Davison in the, I guess the five doctors rebuilt the console and made an entirely new one. And, you know, he's dusting it off there at the end. Again, I felt like we had that old one that just by poor production practices kept looking a little bit different from week to week. Um, But now here's a nice new shiny console. But, but now that they've introduced this idea that it can just change on a whim, um, how does he remember what controls to use? Because now we know that the that the console is completely different. All the controls are different. How it functions works different. Everything's different. I mean, he had enough trouble piloting that thing when it was just a standard Type 40 and he didn't really read the manual. But how is it that the thing changes all the time now and it's like, oh, well, where's the helmet regu- regulator today? Oh, it's the bicycle pump. I, it's like, that. I don't. I don't like that. And and I I'm not too crazy about the fact you know when 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 Eccleston came along and he had that frankly junk console which I I detested. Like okay, we get the explanation that the TARDIS is he can't take it in for repairs, he's got to fix it himself. So that explains the stupid bicycle pump and all the other ridiculous things that are attached to that TARDIS console. All of that was plausible, I just didn't like it. But now, when they regenerate his TARDIS, and it ends up with a typewriter, and I think there's a sextant, and there's a a piece off of a Mercedes, or is it a Bentley, on there, and I think there's a a reservoir for brake fluid at some point on there. It's like, 
why why that why why if the tardis can rebuild itself why didn't it fix itself back to the way it was supposed to be or you know something why a typewriter for crying out loud it, it you know the argument that it's just he's been strapping junk on there to fix it all these centuries is gone completely gone why doesn't his sonic screwdriver look like it's been hacked together since the tardis made that for him the new one if if that's the way it works and then of course he goes to the new console um in in i guess christmas um the snowman and that doesn't look that way that actually looks like a proper spaceship again i like the new one much better except for the kind of whirly rotating carousel at the top but <sighs> that's my complaint about the tardis <laughs> But it, I like this one better than the the tenant one, just because it's bigger, and it kind of has multi levels, and it it does seem a little cooler in, in the grand scheme of things. Which is probably their their aim. I th I think I probably agree with you. I don't much like it changing, although I probably did prefer the one before. Um, but it certainly, you know, it's one of the things about the the TV movie was the fact that you had a completely different TARDIS made it feel a bit like, or at least interior made it feel like a, a bit like a, it was actually a different show. I could accept that as being that backup control room that Tom Baker had been using for a while. Maybe. And I know that was small, but I could accept you know, that as being. any roundels anywhere. No roundels. I can't cope. Yeah. And, and, wrong. and, you know, and then that came along and now that, does seem to have established a tradition of the TARDIS interior, or, or at least the, the, the console room, changes. The desktop and, and, theme. You know, that's just what's going to happen now. So, And I hate that more than anything else. The idea that it's just a desktop theme. So, we are out of regeneration episodes. We are, yes. We're completely out of regeneration. And it's going to be a while... I think even with our delay, I think it's going to probably be quite a while before we see Peter Capaldi as the Doctor. Yes, um, yes. We've they, we've now discussed, although we haven't really discussed the first Doctor, we've discussed every other incarnation of the Doctor, except for the Watcher and the Veil Yard and the Dream Lord and the Hurt Doctor and the Shalker Doctor. I, I'm hoping that when, after Day of the Doctor, which is like 10 days, from the time we're recording this um after that all of that will be fixed <laughs> they will they will have solved that all out we will john hurt will be a doctor from the future that never happens because of what they do instead of blowing up gallifrey the the three doctors will get together and they will somehow avert that so that it will be a massive triumph and not a hideous downer at the end of the episode where the doctor once again has to destroy everything and so they'll revert that. That'll change all the time. John Hurt's doctor will cease to exist and lay the foundation for the next doctor being Peter Capaldi. That's my dream. <laughs> well, since this won't go out until after that, you'll have time to edit that out. Yeah. Yeah, I can edit it out or I can leave it in and say, all right, fine. I was wrong. They did make it a big downer and they, he blew up Gallifrey at the end. Well, you um, could be right, but I'm guessing probably not. Probably not. Well, thank you for joining me for this episode and for this project of going through the uh, the years of the Doctor's regeneration. It has been an absolute pleasure. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just remembering Time and the Rani and the Twin Dilemma. But oh. No, I, it has been an absolute pleasure. 
<laughs> and uh, I hope our listeners will join us again next time on Fusion Patrol. Fusion Patrol is a Lone Locust production. Like us? Leave us a review on iTunes. Or stop by and visit at our website, fusionpatrol.com. Find us on Facebook or Twitter. Search for Fusion Patrol. Or just drop us a note at feedback at fusionpatrol.com. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. And he goes something like this. The doctor is in trouble. <laughs> he, thought I, he thought I was going to play a tune, didn't you? Burst into song at that point. <laughs> I thought about it. I thought about it. But, yeah, you don't want me to do that. Let's see. Could I do the doc? Uh, I am the, the doctor is double newly regenerated. He faces. Oh, no, I'm going to try. I'm just going to do it straight.